a listener production. Hello, you listenable legends. It's Angus O'Loughlin here. I am in the studio recording this on the Monday after the closing ceremony of the Paralympic Games, uh, games that I watch way more of than the Olympics, enthralled with our athletes' achievements, sitting on the edge of my couch cheering them on. What a games it was. Uh, congratulations to all the athletes, and especially congratulations to the athletes that have featured on our podcast. Um, now that the Games is finished, I want to give a shout-out to all of our athletes, but in particular to Kurt McGrath. One of our first ever guests on Listenable. He was actually part of our pitch. So we recorded a bunch of episodes to bring to the podcast platform, Listener, that gives us the opportunity to be on the air. And Kurt was one of the people. He had no idea what this podcast was, what it would be, but he said yes. And I still think to this day about his episode of standing on that mine over in Afghanistan and losing his legs and then getting to watch him not once but twice receive a gold medal in his canoeing and kayaking sport was just incredible. Congratulations, Kurt. A huge congratulations to Madison D. Rosario. Last episode's guest, we spoke to her just before she headed over to Tokyo. She had a huge campaign with four events. She had a fifth in the 5,000 metres, a bronze in the 1,500 metres, and then two incredible gold medals. The 800 metres, and wow, her performance in the marathon coming from behind, being so close as they entered the stadium after all that distance and bringing a famous victory and another gold medal for Australia. Congratulations. We shout out to our boy Heath Davidson, Dylan's tennis partner, claiming with Dylan a silver in the doubles. And of course, to our boy Dylan Alcott. What can we say? For me, and I might be biased, providing one of the great moments of the games, that hug with Neil Vink in the semifinals after they finished. Neil growing up, aspiring to be like Dylan and then playing for a gold medal match. Uh, yeah, that was for me just, I mean, I had tears rolling down my cheeks. It was just amazing. And then for Dylan to go a couple of days later onto the court and to back up his efforts in Rio and win another gold was huge. Um, the performance itself was amazing, but I'm going to play for you the post-game interview, which I think speaks volumes about Dylan not necessarily playing for himself, but for playing for his country and the bigger purpose of what he believes in. Um, I'm not coming back to the Paralympics ever again. So um, I love the Paralympic Games so much. It means so much to me. When I was 17, I got to go with the rollers and we won gold and it was life-changing. But Paralympic sport in general saved my life. It did. And um, it it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I owe it so much. And I just took a moment out there to look around because I'm so thankful and grateful that it came into my life and that I can perform on the big stage and do it with my friends and, and... change perceptions along the way of what people think about us, people with disabilities, and not just as athletes, you know. Hopefully this is changing perceptions beyond that. Not every person with a disability can be a Paralympian, but they can be a doctor, a lawyer, a mum, a dad, a teacher, an educator, a politician, whatever it is, but they don't often get the opportunities that we've got here to play sport. And that's what we're trying to do. And um, I wear that, uh, it's that, it means that much to me. Like, it's huge. and. To get it done today was bloody awesome. It was incredible. Were you drawing not on that, the fact that this was your last games? Because you had to dig, mate. That first set, down a break, 5-3 down, you really had to rally to keep yourself in this one. Yeah, I did. I don't, you don't want to think about it too much, but what I reminded myself is how bloody good is this? Like, I'm the luckiest guy in the world right now to be doing what I love, fighting for this gold medal. And I had a bit more, can, I had a bit more fun from that point. I don't know if you could tell, but I started enjoying it more and... 
when I enjoy myself, I play well. And um, I never thought it would happen. When I started playing sport, you know, I played my first Aussie Open in 2014. There's about four people watching. And now it's prime time on TV, number one trend on in Australia. It's just, it's just, I didn't think it would happen. You don't even need me. I'm washed up as. <laughs> and, you know, honestly, like every single person that speaks, He's just saying the most incredible stuff and normalising our disabilities for so many people. And I, I didn't have that. I, I hated myself. And, and because of the generation of athletes before me, I found what I love, my passion, my purpose. And it was because of the Paralympic Games. And um, the, next, the current gen and the next gen are just so impressive. And you don't need me anymore, that's for sure. I'm done. I'm out of here. And, you know, what a team effort. I can't believe we did it. We actually did it, and this is for everybody. So thanks, mate. Thank you, everyone. Dylan bringing home two medals, a silver with the doubles and a gold in the singles. But our guest this week is another Paralympian. Once again, we spoke to him just before he went over to Tokyo, and Jared Clifford had an incredible campaign. He boarded the plane back to Australia with three medals around his neck, a bronze in the 1500, a silver in the 5,000 metres, and a silver in the marathon. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and congratulations to all the Paralympians. Jared, my man, thanks so much for coming on. No, thanks for having me on. I'm stoked. Can you start by just telling everybody a little bit about yourself, what you do? Yeah, so uh, I'm a distance runner. That's my sport. I uh, am competing uh, in 1,500 metres, 5,000 metres and marathon. Uh, I'm visually impaired. I was diagnosed with juvenile macular degeneration when I was uh, three years old, deteriorated during primary school. Uh, So I'm what they say is legally blind. But uh, that's basically just, yeah, a a severe visual impairment. I am so enthralled by your sport and in particular the way that with your disability you compete in it because it, to me, is so frightening the idea of sprinting at the speeds you do with the lack of vision. I just don't know how – I mean, obviously it's your normal – but that's like fear factor stuff for me. I'd have Joe Rogan coming out and introducing you for every episode every time you run. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's you know, I run the 1,500 metres in three minutes and 41 seconds, which is quicker than what? 60 seconds a lap. Um, what's that, <laughs> so what's that awesome. per K? Like, yeah, it's pretty quick. But I uh, know yeah, it is my normal, though. You know, I, I, I learned to run with my visual impairment, but uh, that's not, I'm not going to lie. When I'm off the track and I go for even a jog, much slower pace. There's definitely some scary moments for sure. We actually have a lot of people probably listening who are on a run. Yeah. They're probably doing some fitness. Just close your eyes <laughs> and run 20 metres. All right? Four that people just fell into Albert Park like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when did this love affair with athletics and running and sports start for you? Yeah, I've always been a huge fan of sport. Uh, when I was a kid, I was, I'm born in 1999. So when I was about five or six, Becoming aware of sport, I, uh, you know, it was 2005-06 Ashes, beat England 5-0, it was like Shane Warne's last one. Uh, then Commonwealth Games were in Melbourne 2006, I'm from Melbourne, so I went to a few of those. And the Socceroos made the World Cup for the first time in, you know, ages. And I, I kind of grew up around that and I fell in love with sport. I, I'm a Carlton man though, it wasn't a great era for the Blues. <laughs> back then, but yeah, I love sport. Uh, I tried my hand at everything. My dream was sport. wasn't quite sure what it was, uh, but you know, a lot of the ones that I was exposed to were, you know, ball sports. Uh, uh, you know, I read a book once when I was a kid. Backyard cricket legends. There was all these Australian Test cricketers that had you know cricket nets in their backyard, and 
you know, I could really only bowl. I, I, you can't. It's pretty hard to smack the ball out of the park when you can't see the ball. But <laughs> with me, my reality was that a lot of the sports that I really like to do, um, I could do them, but it wasn't quite at the level that I really wanted to do them at. And it was getting frustrating as my eyes changed. Um, I've got a degenerative eye condition, so I was kind of getting used to that. And I went to a Paralympic talent search uh, just before the 2012 Paralympic Games, and uh, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the beef test. Uh, I did. Oh. <laughs> it's brutal. I did good at it, and they're like, "Well, yeah, running's probably the, your your sport." And I, yeah, fell in love with that straight away because it was this sport that I could do. Uh, I didn't have to see a ball. Um, I didn't have to see, you know, that I was passing it to the right person. Uh, I could just run around a track, and the track never changed. And I just loved that I could do that, and it was. Um, yeah, from the moment I started doing it properly, uh, it was definitely the sport for me. I'd personally like to go back to, you know, you in primary school when your eyesight started to deteriorate. Um, and how did you deal with that? Was it, could you see, did you have like markers of seeing where you were starting to lose your sight more often? Was every year at Christmas were the presents under the tree <laughs> becoming a little bit less easy to identify? Can you take us through the process of losing your sight to where you are today? Yeah, my sight, like, you know, that was during primary school, I guess. Uh, a lot of the things I used to, like, read a lot, uh, print read a lot, and uh, particularly before school, um, I'd kind of grab the paper from out the front and, and like, ha- flick through the sports section. And I was actually noticing, I think it was in grade four or something like that, and I was noticing that, I kept having to like clean my glasses to like, cause I thought they were dirty and they always are dirty. But when I'd clean them, my ability to perceive the detail that I was trying to was, it wasn't changing when I'd clean my glasses. And um, I was noticing it a lot more that I was, uh, my vision was fatiguing. Uh, so I'd kind of get to probably halfway through school and I was just, absolutely cooked and fried and mum was even getting me to take some like a day off each week every now and then just because I couldn't get through the school week because I wasn't quite if I strained myself enough I could get by but I couldn't get by for the whole day Uh, and it was stuff like that little things that I was starting to notice and for me as it changed it was an interesting experience because uh, in the classroom I'd have to rely a lot more on uh, aids like you know sitting a lot closer to the teacher um you know it was a weird one like I was the only kid at school for a while that had a laptop and although that's you know you can twist that to be super cool it made me stand out and at that stage I really didn't like that I didn't like the idea of being different and my teacher's aides throughout primary school and high school have mostly all been incredible people um that I'm still friends with today but the idea of having a teacher's aide you know, in grade four and five to me was horrifying. And um, so in a lot of ways, I didn't take it so well. In a lot of other ways, I took it really well because I never stopped playing sport. My parents threw me into sport if I wanted to do it. Um, You know, they never said, oh, that might be a little bit dangerous. Um, You know, they let me, if I wanted to, play into school sport cricket. And like, I didn't bat very much, but if I really felt like I wanted to that day, um, I, you know, I'd be allowed to do that. There'd be no, if I wanted to, I could do it. Did you field when you played cricket? Yeah, I was like wicket keeper, backstop, and uh, the hang on, wait, <laughs> wicket keeper. You can't see the balls coming. No, I was you. the backstop behind the keeper. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like it's like get this guy out of the way. 
That's funny. Yeah. And uh, that's good stuff. We had a one of our earliest guests was a guy called Ben Penningill, and he had yes. uh, he woke up overnight and was blind while he was in I think the beginnings of high school, and he went back mm. to school within a week. And as he put it, he was in denial. Um, what was your mindset as you saw the slow uh, degenerative eyesight condition worsen? Yeah, I've met Ben. He's an incredible person. Uh, it's funny. There's this definition or terminology where you become legally blind. Uh, my vision had been like this for s- such a long time, uh, but then you go do the test and you get the official terminology. And I don't know. I just remember vividly it being like, a really somber thing in terms of the people doing the test and the people thinking, uh, trying to respond to what they thought my reaction would be. And I remember, I think a psychologist, well-meaning, came in and basically started the conversation with, sorry for what has happened to you. And like, I'd been, you know, I was like 10 or something and I hadn't woken up that morning with anything different. Uh, so that, that pissed me off a little bit. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's just something like, how did I respond at the time? I didn't stop doing anything if I wanted to keep doing it. So, Are your eyes getting worse still or do they reach a point where they have plateaued? Uh, yeah. So I've got juvenile macular degeneration, which is different to like age-related macular degeneration. Uh, but I think, yeah, it's, it, it will most likely deteriorate, but it could be for a long, long time. But my juvenile one, so it's basically like scar tissue and blistering on the back of the eye. Yeah, it could. Um, you kind of just got to, yeah, you got to like be ready for it, I guess, if it happens. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't be too phased, I don't think. Do you ever wake up in the morning and go, oh no, I'm a little bit more blind and then go, oh, actually, just hungover. Yeah. Or something uh, like that. Like, it's, uh, no, it's definitely happened before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it would. Yeah. yeah. We obviously have you on, uh, we'd have you on regardless because of your story, but as you and Dylan both prepare in the next week, seven days, to head over to Tokyo for the Paralympics. Um, It's not your first Paralympics. You were in Rio. You came seventh in the men's 1500, T13, and uh, the 5000 as well. But you're going into a different classification for these games. So how does that work? Uh, And it will be actually, it's the same classification. For visually impaired athletes, there's T11, 12, and 13. T11's for totally blind. Uh, and then 12 and 13 are for visually impaired. I'm a, I'm a T12 athlete. I'm in the middle. I have the choice to run with guides. But then for distance running, because we don't have lanes, uh, 12 and 13 <sighs> is combined. So it actually will come up yep. as T13, but it combines both of the classifications. You competed in able-bodied world championships for the under-20s, yeah, in 2018. Yeah. So are you, have you got a guide for that then, or are you running free yeah, so that. that's the thing. So 1,500 metres, which is what I competed then, I've never used a guide um, because on the track, navigationally, I'm not too bad. Like I'm, I can do it. It's more when I use a guide on the track, which I have done in the past for 5,000 metres, it's to give me like the information I can't see. So what position I'm coming, uh, so how many laps to go. It's hard to count to 12 when you're cooked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, which, which athletes in front? Like if it's the Kenyan out in front... Might need to go a bit earlier. To. If yeah. it's someone I'm not so nervous about, I might just let him run out in front a bit. So that stuff, it's more for information. But then, yeah, off the track uh, and then in, so on some tracks at night, guides are not just there for that information but they're for the navigational um, kind of aspect too. How does a guide work? Talk us through the rules, yep. how you guys are connected, like what, who, who yeah. it is, like what's the vibe? Yeah, there? so... Uh, they've actually brought in new rules recently 
uh, where the tether length, which is what uh, we I hold and the guide holds, has to be 30 centimeters. But most of that is taken up by the loops that we hold. So we're pretty much connected to, by our hands. We get a little bit longer for like a marathon. It's 50 centimeters, which is good. But we have to run in sync. Uh, my guides uh, throughout my career, Tim Logan, who's my best mate, uh, I've run with him for almost a decade now. Uh, he's one of them. Philo Saunders, my coach, he was a guide with me in Dubai. Uh, but we've actually recently had to make the decision that for the 5K, I'm going to have to try and wing it and run like it's solo just because my guides uh, aren't quite there. Too yeah, smart. Yeah. Too much uh, no, I can't say that. Uh, you say it. They're too slow. Uh, they got, uh, they, uh, pretty, yeah, maybe. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Because I have seen that you've run with two guides before, but that is that, that's for marathons, right? So they have fresh legs. And for, four, and for 5K at World Champs, I did use two guides. And the 1,500 metres, we're only allowed to have one. And that's one of the reasons why I've never ha- been able to go there because I'd need – you know, your, your, your Stewie McSwain or your Ollie Hoare, Jai Edwards, the Olympic guys. Like yeah. that, that's kind of the pace I would need. But then that doesn't guarantee you're going to be good at guiding because a guide, one, you have to trust them with your life. And I'm literally crossing highways with Timmy. Um, but two, you know, this is the Paralympic Games is something I've worked towards for my entire life. And I'm trusting them to give me the right information so that I can make the right decisions to achieve a lifelong dream. And they have to communicate effectively under pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a really important job. Have you ever lost a race because your guide cracked and they got heavy legs? <laughs> nah. In, in, there was one training one we did. It didn't matter too much where uh, one of the guides didn't quite make it to the changeover point with the other one. I had to run 150 metres by myself. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was classic. I love it. <laughs> You're just putting your guides yeah, into pain. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty funny one. But uh yeah, so my, my guides in the marathon uh, for Tokyo, I've, uh, I've Tim Logan, best mate, and Vincent Donoghue, a training partner. So. I recently watched uh, in the Olympics, we had our decathlon bronze medalist, whose name uh, I forget now, but he had his other Australian teammate who made the finals who realised he wasn't going to medal, yeah. basically chasing him <laughs> down the straight, screaming supportive abuse yeah. at him. Is there any of that going on? Along with the Kenyans, you know, four lengths ahead, we're on our seventh lap. Is there a bit of, it's the Paralympics, come on, Jared. I've had a few races where, uh, particularly Timmy, uh, he's gone to me. There's, you know, there's a runner in front of me that I probably should be beating. And he'll go, mate, like, you're not going to lose to this guy, are you? And, like, that's, you know, that that, that gets you going because he's, like, basically mocking you while you're in quite a bit of pain. But um, I remember world champs, 500 metres to go, Timmy said, you know, this is, you know, this is what you've effing been working towards for ages. And that stuff just, like, pumps you up. Yeah, it's good. It's, um, yeah. yeah, a couple of swear words, a couple of, couple of actually, you know, productive sentences. It's pretty good. And we did, I feel like we brushed over, Jared, the fact that Dylan did mention that you ran in 2018 in an able-bodied under-20 world championship. Can you take us through why you decided to run there? Obviously, your skills, your skill set was enough, but is it different running against able-bodied athletes compared to people who are in that T11, 12, and 13 categories you're used to? Yeah, sometimes it's easier, to be honest, because if you think about it, running in a pack with people that can't see very well is actually like super dangerous. <laughs> like the able-bodied runners <laughs> yeah. can actually see you and not run into you. Um, it was a crazy, crazy thing. Like I qualified pretty clutch. Like I won the national title, didn't have a qualifier. 
Uh, and then they just like put on, they had this race that was happening the next day, last day of the qualifying period. And I got the time. Uh, and I was like, well, in 2018, like Commonwealth Games uh, for me isn't really an option. There's no event for me. Um, so I didn't have any championship that year to work towards. And suddenly this one popped up and I kind of thought I may as well have a go. Um, it's definitely getting thrown in the deep end. You know, the international guys, a lot of runners in Australia, although I assure them not to do this, I think they actually might give me a wider berth on the track um, just because they're wary of, of obviously what I can and can't see. But then obviously the, you know, the Moroccan guys in my, my heat, yeah, he doesn't know anything about me. So he's like, I think he gave me a good old kidney punch um, early on. So, yeah, it's a, diff- it's a different thing. But, yeah, in terms of like racing them, in a pack it's actually if you watch the rio 1500 i was in uh yeah people are taking tumbles like heaps i I nearly went down a couple of times and it's um sometimes easier to not to just get out in in front and stay clear we everyone's been glued to the olympics it's been awesome i'm watching peter bowl mcsweeney all everyone running there is some proper (laughs) punch-ons in like elbows like pushing out of the way how does that operate when you're all running with guides as well is there a bit of argy-bargy for position yeah even it's with an the interesting guides? one i know i i was like man like i feel like guides might get much leeway to give a shove back if they caught one um but i know timmy clipped a guy in the world champs in 2019 and he was stressing about that i think i think if you're in a guide team people steer clear of you because you just like you you move as one athlete basically and like so then you just take up the space and it's um tactically it's not it's not a bad thing to have to be honest like if you take the lead with a lap to go like people are gonna have to go pretty wide to go around you so what about if well i'm just gonna be up front so when there are people with oh actually let me ask you this question first so i'm right you keep saying vision impaired i've got told not to say vision impaired i got told to say blind or low vision where do you sit on that I usually refer to it as blinky, which I actually don't know. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. So, again, so I was going to double down and say, but you actually say blinky, which talk to me why you say blinky. Can I say blinky? Can Angus say blinky? What's the deal? I'm not sure. Like, personally, I I don't mind. Like, I, I, you know, Russell Short, legend Paralympic athlete, you know, eight eight or so Paralympic games, a couple of medals. Yeah. That's how he said it to me um, when I was a kid. And um, I know, I just kind of like it. I think it's a cool name. Uh, I don't. I don't see why it would be bad. Um, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. What about us? Well, can we say it? I'm happy for you to say it. I, I can't speak for other people. I don't know what their opinions would be, but I know me personally, like uh, when I, when I chuck it on my Instagram and Twitter, like I, I reckon it's a cool, cool name, like a nickname. I don't know. It breaks down sort of a social barrier for people who are able-bodied to realise that, you know, you have this kind of yeah. banter, you know, Blinky's yeah. funny. It makes you a little bit more accessible, especially me as an able-bodied guy. I, we speak about this often in the podcast. I feel like I walk on eggshells when referring yeah. to people's disabilities a lot of the time because people like to be disability forward. They like to be person first. We have messages of people when we put up someone saying they're low vision. Someone said, can you please just say they're blind? Being low vision means that they're not accepting of their disability. I'm like, well, this person didn't want to be that. So it's yeah. all individual in uh, cases. So Blinky for you is perfect and it's exactly yeah. what you want and – what you, yeah, know, you can like, you can't please everyone like that's just impossible but yeah i mean for me yeah it's totally fine i think um I, I i honestly think unless you're coming from a place of genuine hate yeah then it's like if it is something that someone doesn't like 
but the person isn't coming from a place of, of hate, then I think it's just like you just you can correct them in a ni- like a super nice way if that's not something you like. But for me, with my disability, um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't define me, but it's definitely a strong part of my identity that I'm proud of. Uh, it's you know, there's definitely been moments in my life where I've not wanted to tell anyone. I've been really scared of what people will uh, think if their idea of me will change, and I'm totally over that. That's like ten years ago. And I'm, yeah, being visually impaired isn't all of me, but it's definitely a part of me and it's definitely made me who I am. And, and honestly, Dylan, I think, yeah, hearing you do a lot of talks when I was, you know, a lot younger definitely um, resonated with me and it's definitely shaped my uh, outlook on myself. So thank you. Thanks for saying that. I'll slip you that 50 bucks later. <laughs> that was beautiful. Shout out. Jared, can I ask how you go because, you know, people who would be watching this on socials or they can go and check you out on, there's a lot of YouTube content you've got up on, online. You, For the most part, and tell me that I'm wrong, your disability can be seen as somewhat invisible. I mean, we've got a man who's running ridiculous times around a track, 1,500 metres by himself, setting records, world records, in fact. Then you also... You're looking into the computer webcam at times. I don't know if that's accidental or not, but you seem to be communicating, you know, with your eyes to us. So for a lot of people, they would see it as an invisible disability. Yeah, for sure. For one, is that difficult? And is that also why you do use a cane sometimes, especially around train stations? Well, yeah, I have an ID cane, so it's not like a proper cane. And it's more because in the city, people uh, don't tend to move out of your way or they come towards you and it gets a bit overwhelming. And people, as soon as you whip that out, people like just part and it's actually cool. <laughs> the Red Sea. Uh, literally, I was thinking that as I said that. <laughs> so it's good. Because I never knew about an ID cane until I came across you. I've, we've seen people use canes to come into our studio, mm. but you literally use it so people know just to give people you a bit know. of extra room, yeah. especially around trains. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's definitely good. Like, to be honest, a lot of the time I'm also with people uh, and I like follow behind them. Um, and no one else would know. They hardly even notice as well, but I, I take cues off them. Uh, and that includes when I'm running too. But, yeah, invisible disability. I think it's funny, like, especially when I'm running on a track and it's, like, the most controlled environment ever. It's when I'm at my most fresh too because I've tapered and it's, like, three minutes and it's particularly even, like, time trials. Like, if you look at all my results, my best times are often time trial ones where there's not much going on. And, yeah, people have said to me, oh, like your disability or your impairment, you know, mustn't be that hampering of you running. And it's like, like one, it's like, because I've run a fast time, that's what's made them think that too. And it's like, why don't you think someone with an impairment or disability can do such a thing? Uh, Mm. It's like, it's like beyond their comprehension sometimes. That's how it feels to me anyway. But a lot of the other time it's like, you got to see me off the track uh, you got to see how cooked I am after that race visually because of how much I've had to strain to like to to, to, to make sure I'm not tripping myself up or anyone else. Like uh, it, it's a lot more complicated than people think. I think people don't like always think when they kind of say stuff like that. But it's invisible as in I don't have an arm or a leg. But I think um, if you you watch me race enough, you'll you'll definitely see it. Uh, Jared, you've mentioned a couple of times visual cues. Um, what do you? mean with that is this the lines on a track are there certain you know deliberate markers that are put in in particular for you know your t races uh, what, what are these cues you talk about what do you see when you run it's more when i'm training the cues i talk about so i'll like for me if i could choose a better way to be guided it would be with the person in front of me when a person's in front of me like i assume they don't want to hit anything um so if i run directly behind them 
oh, I won't hit anything either. Uh, and then, like, when I cross a road, I, like, always wait for the person to cross because I assume they don't want to get hit by a car. Um, and then, yeah, if I follow their cues like that, like, I should be safe. Um, and then on the track, like, we take about 50 steps before we turn and then turns usually the same. as It's just, like, memory, muscle memory. Like, each lap is pretty much the same amount of time uh, and stuff like that. But then also in a race, like, if I'm racing in a pack or, an, like, an able-bodied race, like, I know my weakness uh, is in a pack and I will lose energy or I'll trip over. So I just avoid that. I try and get a good start and sit at the front out of trouble. Um, and I follow, I just follow people's feet. Um, I watch them. Yeah. If I, if I don't get a good start, sometimes that can be my undoing. I love Paralympic sport because it's obviously different because we have disabilities, but what you just described then is exactly how Peter Bowl describes his race. Get out, get a start, mm. get out of packs and do the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think if you eliminate our disabilities, which is one thing we love about the Paralympics, it's just sport, right? The same way that there's tactics around it. So you kind of integrate your disability into those tactics, if that makes sense, yeah. Angus, you mm. know what I mean? And then you try and use those cues when you go. Mm. It's really interesting to hear. Jay, what does it mean to you to be a Paralympian? Like, what does it make you feel when, when someone calls you a Paralympian? Yeah, it's it's uh, definitely, definitely, probably, yeah, it's the one thing I like to introduce myself as in terms of like a, a thing that I've done in my life. Um, I know when I was a kid, meeting Paralympians, them being my heroes, like, and then to even be, you know, Paralympian, the label of it, the meaning of it, the the symbolism of it, it's incredible. Um, it means the world to me. And it, uh, I, I find it interesting when people uh, write an article about me if I've run a quicker time, uh, particularly, or when I went to the World Junior Championships for able-bodied. Uh, and, and the article is, is like, you know, will Jared Clifford ever make the Olympic Games? And it's, I don't know, I don't like that because for me, I've grown up with Paralympic heroes. I've grown up with Olympic heroes too, but I've always dreamt about the Paralympic Games. I've dreamt about winning a Paralympic gold medal. That's my dream. And to me, to me, that's, that's, my, that's my thing. That's what I'm working towards. And it's just everything about my running career, you know, has been directed towards that. And I, 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 I'd like to think that people, when they see me run, uh, you know, this is the Paralympian, not the guy that might be good enough to run in the Olympics. Like I'm, I'm good enough to run in the Paralympics and, and contend for hopefully a medal or a gold medal. Like that's, that's my thinking. Have you ever had any big falls? And if so, does that instill a little bit of fear in you that takes some time for you to mentally work through? Talk about when you started. I want to hear faceplant oh, stories. Oh, man. Surely. <laughs> faceplant, I mean, in a race, like I'm actually – such would like I haven't actually fallen it's more training uh that's the scary one like um when I started I mean there's stories when I'm a kid you know me just like riding bikes straight into poles and walls and stuff because I did, mustn't have seen it or something like that like I think some of my funnier ones are like more you know I've stacked on gutters and roots and like stuff that are like probably a little bit more explainable it's more like when I'm running around a footy field I've nailed a goalpost before and like, like they're in the same spot, so I still don't know if I was just being stupid. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, face plants, yeah, a few. I think actually it's funny. Like a lot of the people that are like giving me verbal instructions on a run, they actually tend to stack more than me because I'm obviously listening to them 
and then I'm not falling. But because their concentrations on making sure I'm okay, they stack. So that's pretty. That that seems to be common um, as well. Definitely have drawn blood on many occasions, and I guess that's the thing. Like if I, but then in terms of fear, if I get fearful of it, then like I won't be able to run as quick as I can. How has your lead up to Tokyo been, man? Obviously, it's been a tough time for everybody, but um, you know, with COVID and that, I, I imagine. Have you been able to catch up with your guide? Like, what's what's it been like for you getting ready? It was hectic last year um, from Melbourne, so I got uh, a little bit caught up in the bad lockdown. Like, um, probably got uh, maybe a third or halfway through that, and I actually got an exemption to go to Canberra with my guide, Timmy, who was also in Melbourne, and my training group's up there with my coach and stuff. So I've spent the last 12 months up there, actually, and it's been amazing in, in terms of that. But, uh, like, I miss I miss home. For visually impaired athletes uh, or visually impaired people, I think like being in a comfortable environment can like limit fatigue um, and stuff like that. And it's just obviously more comfortable. Uh, and Canberra, although I've been there a lot, it, it was a bit of a change living at home too. Um, that was a, a new step for me. So it's been a lot of new experiences, but in terms of my fitness, I'm the fittest I've ever been and I'm stoked about that. And um, my training group is like family to me in Canberra. So um, and, and in terms of my guides, yeah, like for me, guiding is most necessary in training, I think. And um, yeah, I've, they're amazing. Let's get into the yeah, bowl of uncomfortable deal. So the bowl of uncomfortable is a question where people send us questions that they wouldn't feel comfortable asking you to your face. We told people that we're going to have, you know, yourself, Jared Clifford on the podcast and someone sent through a question anonymously and here it is. Yeah. Do you believe anyone has ever lied about their disability to be put into a different category amongst people with higher level needs? I'm pretty sure Sydney 2000, wasn't there like a big scandal? Do you know this scandal, Angus? I don't know. Pretty, pretty, pretty sure it's definitely happened, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you this one and then we'll get back to your sport. But um, it was the, they used to have um, basketball for people with non-physical disabilities, uh, like intellectual disabilities. And this, I think it was the Spanish team, they won and then they, the classifiers who classified them as all having Down syndrome went out to the pub and half the team was out celebrating and they weren't actually Down syndrome. They were faking. But they caught them at the pub oh. celebrating was, their medals. Yeah, it was one a journalist? I'm sure one was like an undercover journalist or something. What? Maybe. How can Maybe. you live yeah. with yourself? That is outrageous. I just exactly. thought like... It might when this when I read this question, I thought that's a great one because Jared might be like, "Oh, this person's you know playing up their eyesight a little bit to be put into the T11 category," but no, T11. what like a full fake? Yeah, I feel like the system is pretty strict. Like you have to um, basically you have to have documentation. Like for me, like my documentation dates back to almost birth. Um, so I'm three. Uh, like ophthalmo- you have to go see ophthalmologists. You have to show ophthalmology reports for your entire life. Uh, and then you do uh, a test, international classifiers, they're pretty comprehensive. There are so many checks in place, Gus, to make sure that people classified where they are. Obviously, there's a few outliers who are in the wrong spot, but for the most part, it's pretty good. Nice. Now, before we let you go, Jared, you're obviously you're a young athlete, mate, who has always felt comfortable, I guess, with their disability and their sport, but there might be people listening right now who are your age, vision impaired, or who are losing yeah. their vision as we speak, right? What would your advice be to those people? I think my, my main thing is, is that is not to shy away from the fact that like losing vision is scary uh, and, and there will be hard time, like hard moments. There will be moments when, particularly if you're losing it, where something that you could do before 
and you can't do, and you might not have even thought of that until it happens. And that sucks. Like I also struggled a lot uh, when I was turning 16 and then 18 because all my mates were getting their license. And like I, I knew I couldn't drive, but it was still like, I don't know, a bit shattering at the time. Anyone that is, I think, proud of who they are and embrace it, that doesn't mean that there's like not a moment here and there where you're like, ah, maybe that would have been cool. But then you just got to like look at it and think these are the cards we've been dealt um, and you just got to like play them as best as you can. For me, the most liberating thing in my life was realising that, you know, it's diversity is a strength of society. Being visually impaired is a type of diversity and I think we as people with disabilities, we are, we are you know, our voice is important and to be proud of who you are. Beautifully said, my man. Nah, Very yeah, nice. Yeah. Very nice. And a great way to wrap it up, mate. Um, you are going to be, I guess, goals and, and medal driven. But for me, I'm just looking forward to seeing the journey continue for you and, and watching you on the screen and cheering as loud as I can from the couch with a beer in my hand. A very different scene to what you're actually doing. So good luck in all the events, my man. Thank you very much. And, and, and thanks for having me on. It's, it's been an honor. Big thank you to Jared and uh, good luck to you, Dil. I mean, these episodes have been released. Uh, you know, we're recording this before you compete. So fingers crossed we've got some good results on our tellies. Of course, people can follow you on Instagram as well to get some behind the scenes action. But um, you're nervous? How are you feeling a couple of weeks before heading out? Oh, I'm excited to excited to get there. Hopefully when you listen hmm. to this, I haven't lost first round. That would suck. But um, I'm more excited, mate. It's, I'm just like the Olympians. I think grateful and appreciative that we're getting the opportunity to go because we talked about this, you know, for the last two years, brother. I didn't think it was going to get up. So to now have that opportunity and to get over there safely and healthily and get the opportunity to compete, excited, man. I just want to get there and have a crack and hopefully make you proud, our listen able audience proud, you know, everybody that has supported my journey. It's time to get it on. We do return to a fortnightly release and the next episode of Listen Able is an absolute ripper. Uh, my name is Nathan Borg and I'm Australian actor and I have a disability. What's okay. your disability? I am hard of hearing or you can say I'm deaf. Cool. Now we'll get into your uh, disability and stuff soon. But you said you're an actor. What are you acting on at the moment? I'm on Neighbours. He's on Neighbours, baby! <laughs> <laughs> now, Nathan. I'll get it out of the way. Oh, yes. Can to say The longest Hang running on. soap opera in wait. Australia. Really? Yes, it is. Can we just get a quick poll? Uh, no, don't take this away from me, bro. So, Nathan. Yes. There's uh, no bigger fan of Dylan Orcott than himself. Uh, he please, constantly please. likes to remind me, put your hand up if you've got over 100,000 Instagram followers, put your hand up if you've uh, spoken to the Royals. But for the first time, I can finally say this. Put your hand up if you've been on Neighbours. Oh, my God, you've been on Neighbours as well? You haven't been on Neighbours? Yeah, I have. What? I've been on Neighbours. Oh, really? for sake. Oh, yeah, I have. That's it. I told Liam. That was my moment. <laughs> You've been on Neighbours? Yeah. I taught Liam Hemsworth how to play wheelchair basketball. Oh, and it's a oh. better story than me hanging out with Stingray. Oh, oh, oh God damn it. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. See when we get back. I love you. Listenable was presented by Dylan Alcott and Angus O'Loughlin. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Produced by Beth Gibson. We also hire people with disability, including Stephen Tower, who does our captions for YouTube. And our awesome theme song is made by Eliza Hull. Listener.